This is Tommy Zaudor's 120. And today we are going to talk about benthic habitats. What is benthic? Well, everything that is to do with the uh, bottom of the body of water. So seabed or uh, seafloor, if you like, uh, for the purpose of this uh, podcast. Uh, and uh, our guests today are once again those lovely scientists from the MARPAM project. Uh, in particular, Dr. Alex Calloway from the Agri-Food and Biosciences Institute. Uh, Alex was already our guest in episode 104, where 104 was kind of like an introduction, general introduction to MARPAM project. Uh, then Dr. Chris McGonigal from the School of Geography and Environmental Sciences. Professor Andy Wheeler, the Chair of Geology from the School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University College Cork. And Jer Summers, also from the University College Cork, who is a PhD researcher in the MARPAM project. Um, so we are going to talk about benthic, benthic habitats, uh, specifically seabed habitat mapping and modeling. That's the work package uh, that we are going to focus in this episode of the podcast. And wow, I love uh, talking with those scientists because they're passionate about what they do and, and we could go on for hours. So uh, just to give you a few highlights that we talked about, we talked about the really uh, cutting edge technology, uh, how they're gathering data for uh, preparing those uh, habitat maps and species distribution maps. Uh, they're using, <laughs> among the other technologies, out autonomous submarines like a, like a drones they're using like a underwater drones as well but also they're they have like a autonomous vehicle so a little submarine that uh, without any intervention of uh, humans uh, just does its stuff in a in a sea close to the seabed uh, so we talk about this <laughs> I found this uh, fascinating from the uh, like an engineering perspective and then we are also talking how they are processing all those, this data because there's like a massive amount of data that is being gathered. And uh, so what they do, they're using artificial intelligence to uh, kind of process all that data and, and get some useful information. So fascinating episode. Uh, we, we also talked about uh, kind of like a general ecology uh, and, and importance, why, why it is important in one certain, you know, those species, like they call it species of interest why they're important, why they need to be uh, protected as our MPA, because uh, re remember, MARPAM is all about MPAs. Um, so uh, I'm sure you will enjoy this uh, episode of the podcast if uh, MPAs and uh, oceans is your thing. Uh, as usual, before I let you enjoy this episode of the podcast, reminder, if you want to support me and what I do here on this podcast and support the podcast, the, the best way, the biggest way you can support the podcast is to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and other people who might be interested in uh, stuff that we talked about here, which is a lot of uh, natural sciences, scientific stuff, but also outdoors experiences, uh, human-wildlife interactions, and so on. Secondly, uh, you can support the podcast and you can do it right now by leaving in the rating uh, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, just Give me a five-star rating. This is great help uh, for the podcast and for me. And finally, if you want to support me personally, um, helping help me edit, edit those episodes. Uh, <laughs> like I said many times, I, I'm doing this very early in the morning or very late at night. 
Uh, so coffee is always helpful. So you can buy me a coffee. Buymeacoffee.com slash Outdoors. The link is in the description of the show. Uh, I really appreciate uh, all of you who already bought me a coffee. This is, uh, like I said, great help for the podcast. And um, uh, yeah. So now without any further delay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Seabed Habitat Mapping with Alex Calloway, Chris McGonigal, Andy Wheeler, and Jer Summers. Marpam Project. Enjoy. Marpam is an Interreg VA-funded project. that the only fair thing is to start with a round of introductions. Uh, so I'm Alex Calloway. I'm the, um, the Bentic Work Package Lead and the Science Coordinator for the Marpan Project that we're speaking about today. And I'm also the Seabed Mapping Lead at the Agri-Food and Biosciences Institute in Northern Ireland. Go on. I'm Chris McGonigal. I'm a, well, I'm a, a marine ecologist based at Ulster University. Um, and I'm working on the T2 package here, along with Ryan McGeady, who's a postdoc on our program. Um, we're looking at basically scape population dynamics and then the innovative use of technology supporting seabed mapping and monitoring. Right, I'm, I'm Andy Wheeler from University College Cork, also involved in uh, T2 in MARPAM. I'm the professor of geology uh, in, in the university and uh, we're really interested in, in seabed mapping. And this is, this is Jer. Yeah, I'm Andy's PhD student. I'm working, the only PhD student in MARPAM. I'm working on seabed habitat mapping and AI and how that that can help us with seabed habitat mapping. We have a we have a big crowd today. You do, you're working on the seabed mapping and habitat mapping. Uh, I think the term is benthic habitats. So if 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 you can give like a, a brief description exactly what the what the package of, of work consists of and and also how then it fits into the bigger Marpam project. And just for, for people, uh, I'm going to repeat that again, that we, we spoke uh, in, in detail about Marpam project in episode 104. So anyone who wants to get a refresher, what Marpam as a whole is about, uh, can go back and listen to 104. But now we talk about this T2 package, work package. So uh, please explain to listeners like what exactly is that work package. I guess I'm going to be nominated for this one. So the the T2 work package is is the is the benthic benthic work package. Um, so benthic just means seabed. It's it's the system of the the substrata, the sediments, and the um, the associated fauna that live on the seabed. What T2 is trying to do is trying to understand um, the distribution of a key suite of um, species of interest so they could be particularly endangered or particularly vulnerable to a certain type of pressure so we want to understand their distribution in the marpam region and that's being carried out through um, various distribution modeling techniques as chris mentioned we've got the innovative use of um, technology and that spans work that chris is doing and that andy and jay are doing and that's the use of things like remotely operated vehicles autonomous underwater vehicles um, and other systems that allow us to investigate the seabed in in a different way that provides more information than we might previously have had 
in the hope that that enhances our ability to monitor and manage the, the marine environment, particularly within the scope of marine protected areas. And so all of our data for T2 and the other work packages are designed to feed in to um, a final work package, which is the, the um, MPA management um, plan package. So they're adopting or trying to adopt all of this new information that MARPAM has generated into enhancing MPA management into the future. Perhaps only a rider to that is the oceans are vast. So the, the MARPAM area is, uh, is, is Scottish waters, uh, waters of Northern Ireland and the border counties in the, in the Republic. Um, and, you know, what we're trying to do is, is really help um, the, the governments there in, in managing that marine, in, that marine environment and giving them the information, the tools to do so. Yeah, and that, polit politically, that's really interesting for, for all of us because it is like a trans-jurisdictional space and that brings into qu issue questions of governance and, and kind of other thor thorny issues around territory, um, and which I'm not going to go into here, but it, it is that's a really interesting thing that underlines the need to have that kind of joined-up approach, you know, because ultimately we've got a range of stakeholders that have different needs across these different jurisdictions, and we need to kind of recognise the value and contribution and role that each each other have in a shared space, you know. The animals have no borders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this is this is like a, a common thing in in you know in in any sciences, especially natural sciences, when whether you talk about uh, migration of mammals or like like you guys are doing, uh, the, the political borders are of no significance to animals and so on. So so tell me, is your work package in the uh, research you're doing or methods you're using? Is it adjust? Is it being adjusted based on those boundaries? Those those you know needs like you mentioned or you you just you do you you do your thing that is consistent across all the areas and then if someone is missing something then tough and someone may have something that he didn't want it or but you just focus on on, on your package of work how does that work do, do you allow this to influence your work well no so i would say the so when, we, when we're thinking about the species distribution models as we've just said the species don't consider the borders. So the modeling domains span the Marpan project area. So that the only border that we have is what, what is the interreg funding area? What is the Marpan project area that we're focusing on? So, but there are things that are inherently limited. We cannot put AUVs across every um, square meter of the seabed across all three jurisdictions. So we have had to select areas which we thought would be of the, the highest interest, key interest. And when we were out on survey last year, again, we had to pick sub areas to try and test what we'd been doing with the work. So you have to make choices, but the um, the work package as a whole is, is supposed to sit across um, the entire Marpan region and not limit um, geographically or geopolitically. But, but that is the really interesting thing as well, is that, that the kind of conservation priorities across the different domains may well be driven by different pieces of legislation, which which underscores that point that actually the conservation doesn't happen in, in, a, in a vacuum like this. You know, that the uh, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder in a, in a lot of instances where what, what might be a conservation priority in one area isn't necessarily to the other members. And actually that the source and sink dynamics of 
where that population originates might be in a completely different jurisdiction to where it is a priority interest. So it underlines the need to have that kind of joined up approach. Absolutely. How big is this impact of uh, what you, which you just mentioned, like migrating or or impact of uh, you know one uh, geopolitical area on the other in terms of you know Marpam area? Because like, for example, yeah, you know, example that I have on top of my head is like migrating birds, right? That the that the guy who shoots ducks in Alaska may impact then something you know something that is in Europe or somewhere else. So how big are is this an issue for for you? So if you want to say it's probably, that's really, I suppose, down to the the life history parameters of the species of interest. And for us in T2, the only one that we're looking at, yeah, the, the only migratory or the only kind of nectonic species is the, the flabberskate. The rest of them are all... Well, yeah, you know, all benthic species pretty much. Well, the ones that we're looking at, I think it's safe to say, have a pelagic life stage. So you know, we, there is potential for larvae to flow from ireland to scotland and actually that's that's the dominant flow because of our prevailing sea conditions um but that can be reversed and, and there's different influences but uh for the when you're thinking about birds to quantify that impact i don't i don't think marpan can address that um but we do have the fortuitous nature i suppose that up until recently we were all following EU legislation. So a lot of these protected features are covered by unified leg legislation. So birds are all covered by EU directives, which are, are adopted in the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland and, and um, Scotland. And even though the UK has, has left the European Union, they're still adopting a lot of the principles, even if it's not by name, the legislation's just had UK written on the end, maybe. But we're, <laughs> we're, still, doing, we're still doing the same things. Um, so actually the species themselves, they're covered. They've got their insurance policies at a level. It's the implementation of that management that can be differentiated. Um, so, you know, the UK has implemented a, a whole range of national marine protected areas, whereas the Republic of Ireland hasn't got to that stage yet. <sighs> so there's, there's a, there's a different facet of, of how, um, marine conservation is happening and how MARPAM in effect can actually support that by, by offering these new these new evidence bases. Yeah, but there's a lot of commonalities. I mean, Ireland is is implementing marine protectors, but hasn't got there yet. Um, and, you know, in terms of the species distributions and flow of organisms across borders, a lot of our approaches and a lot of the, the, the fundamentals of the data, there's a lot in common. So we can look at the differences between the jurisdictions But actually, the commonality is what's important, and that's why you know we're mapping this wider Marpam area. So at least we've got commonality in data delivery to the policymakers, and they're at different stages of implementation. So uh, we can make too much of this. <laughs> no, but I mean, it is really interesting that the 100 the, the underlying data that we use to predict the distribution of the species is common across the domains. But the, the limiting factor in lots of instances is the quality of the data about the species themselves, you know, and, and that is the unknown quantity. So for, for, for loads of our predictive models, we've got great abiotic proxies we can use to t tell us about why the things are where we see them. But we've got really limited data about where we have observed them and where they, how they might be likely to respond to future change. So I think that's, that's, that's common across the whole jurisdiction is that we've got insufficient data in lots of instances to really give us robust 
models. This is great uh, uh, benefit of projects like Marpam that you have more data because uh, you know when I talk with with people who are involved in conservation or like you know marine protected areas or whatever it's always common thing it's like we don't have enough data we don't know how many you know fish we have we don't know how many deer we have we don't know how many badgers we have like nobody like it's seldom that anyone uh dedicates any resources to actually finding out and then when it comes to making policies just basically like a you know shot in the dark but isn't that that's the big issue with us is that actually not having the best uh, possible data doesn't leave you with the, the situation that you can tolerate actually not making management level decisions. So it's about having to be pragmatic and making be- making decisions based on the best available evidence, which doesn't mean it's necessarily the best possible evidence. And that's, that's the situation that we often find ourselves in and conservation management that's a material for an entire different podcast because then you have all the <laughs> lobbying efforts and all the pressure groups and all these things like all right who uh, started this who started it? <laughs> <laughs> no you know it's, it's a it's an integral part and this is where this conflict comes in and and you know like someone said like conservation is managing conflict really uh, because you know scientists give it data and it's quite obvious what should be done, but then there's other people coming. He's like, ah, oh, not so fast because X, Y, and Z. All right, folks, but we're not going to go there. Like, I was, I'm just interested in like, what are those species of interest? You mentioned this term species of interest. So what are they? So our, our core um, species that we've created the distribution models for, uh, as Chris mentioned, the, the flapper skate. So that was historically wrapped up under the umbrella of common skate. And um, it's been identified that there are actually two um, distinct species so that's of interest and um, we've got merle which is calcareous algae which is very slow growing it's very it's coralline it, in its structure and can create a really nice three-dimensional environment for other species to exist in we've got arctica islandica which is a bivalve but it's extremely long-lived um, there's estimates that some individual specimens are over 200 possibly 300 years old. Um, Modiolus modiolus, another bivalve species, it can create um, biohermic reefs or biogenic reefs um, in these bioherm structures. Um, so, that, And again, enhancing the environment for other species. Um, we've got sea pens in the mix as well. They're of interest because they exist in areas of, of soft mud, which is of key interest to the fishing industry. Um, and sea fans and this we've got two species in the uk unicella varicosa and swiftia pallida and they grow on on rocky reefy areas i think that's it somebody can jump in if i've missed one no i, I think <laughs> i think you're bang on the, the thing is that we also have a couple of kind of ancillary species that are of interest because we can model them using similar techniques so once we've established the modeling framework it's relatively easy to kind of modify that to suit other additional species as well. But you're, you're bang on there is the, the thing about that these are sessile species that kind of will release gametes into the water column and, and basically that's the mechanism of larval dispersal. The contrast to that is the skate, which is more in common with the birds guys or with the marine mammals guys, where you're looking more at a mobile species that's got capacity to to move around like that so that's a kind of a fundamental juncture distinction between the two the two groups you know 
Yeah, and I think with these species, I mean, there's a range of them there, um, and they're occurring in different habitats, you know, from, from rocky to muddy and, and, and sandy. So it's not like we're just looking in one area. Um, you know, we're, we're really covering a range of, of different habitats where these important species are, um, as well as other, other communities as well. So it's a good spread. As usual in those cases, I have immediately so many questions in my head that I don't know which one to ask first. <laughs> um, so, okay. Maybe I, uh, the geology one. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I lead. I lead with this one. Um, most of people, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, most of people who listen uh, to this podcast, they they recognize flapper skate. Uh, they know what the algaes are, and they have no idea what the other species are at all, at all. And the question is like, why? And I re- this is a question actually, uh, Alex. I remember when we re- we were recording uh, 104 because Alex was already on the podcast on, on Tommy Saldors in the 104. Uh, one of the questions that I since then I was meant to ask you is why these organisms even matter? Like what the you know like people listen like oh some things in the mud like what do you care? Why are you even you know spending money and technology of in you know investigating some uh, things that nobody even heard about? Why they matter? So that's I'm just uh, you know obviously I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate here. But I would like to hear from from you folks, like why these animals matter and why it is worth to spend money and time uh, mapping their 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 habitat and then ultimately protecting them. You know, I think it's it's the same as you could level that question at, at any organism that people are trying trying to protect or take an interest in. They've all they've all got their different in, um, different facets of interest. So the modiolus, for example, like I said, that that has the potential to create these biogenic reefs. And actually at the European level, you've got legislation, you've got Annex 1. So Modiolus reefs fall under the the Annex 1 biogenic reef um, categorization. So that's got international protection level. So trying to understand Modiolus distributions and the the conditions in which they exist and, and, and how they're distributed within the Marpan region, that's, that's of benefit because that allows... Um, our legislative bodies in the, the devolved administrations and, and, and the Republic of Ireland to, to make a judgment on how potentially how to best conserve those um, and meet the obligations internationally that they have to do so. Um, Arctica is interesting, such a long-lived species that you, know, that you have one organism potentially that has the full suite of contaminants from before the, the Industrial Revolution through it to now. Um, the Norwegians eat them strangely. I wouldn't. I wouldn't fancy it myself. But uh, you know, you've got that. That just as a study organism, that's mm-hmm. interesting. It's long lived. It, it's it's existing in a, a part of the seabed in, in this crossover in this muddy, sandy, sandy, muddy um, environment. So you you by each of these individual species, they've been they've been chosen because they reflect the environmental conditions in a different way. So the sea pens, it's much more muddy, much softer. The flapperscape, they traverse all of these areas. You can find them in muddy areas, in sandy areas. And then the, with the sea, sea fans in the, in the rocky areas, they're exposed, they're filter feeders, they're exposed to, to different um, environmental mechanisms and in, in, in different impacts. So the reason to care, I guess, is we're shining. We, you shine a light on these things. It, we're we're a less um, a less polished blue planet, <laughs> you know. We're none of us are David Attenborough, um, but uh, 
if you don't if you don't know about thing you some a thing you can't care about it and, and we can we can certainly increase the knowledge around that and increase the exposure and to to kind of flip the example the republic of ireland have undertaken um, a, a, a huge hydrographic survey program why should the people of ireland care about that well actually they've just there's a whole marine submarine territory which belongs to the irish people in in some way and um and now they can see it so these things belong to everybody. We're all curators and we're all responsible for them. Um, and so, you know, th I think that's the, the key bit to, to take forward is we've all, got, we've all got a small part of ownership and we've all got a small part of responsibility for, for these things that we're just through our actions as humans affecting in one way or another. Yeah, I, I think I'd like love to jump in on that actually is th that point that the analog there about mapping the extent of the shape and textural nature of that territory is a really important thing to do from a understanding resource allocation and, and from a territorial mapping point of view. But then it's understanding basically that linkage between how organisms utilize those environments and whether or not we can actually make those direct uh, kind of one-to-one -one relations to say, well, there, there is this sediment, there is this textural property, therefore there is this community. And that, that by necessity, actually, that relationship is more complex and more nuanced than, than we maybe can realize. And that actually some of the processes that are important for governing species distribution, we don't really well understand. Our knowledge of the species life history for some of these invertebrate groups is very poor. And some of it's based on Victorian observations from aquaria and things like this, you know. So we, we don't really understand how important a lot of these groups are. Uh, and in complex systems where there is diversity, the diversity is the strength, is the resilience and its ability to cope with changing conditions. And if we, we don't, like, you think about this like a census style approach where we want to understand what there is where, first of all, so that we can prioritize better our protection, our area-based protection. If we, if we don't know how much stuff we have, then how can we afford protection when we're resource limited in terms of trying to administer that protection. So I, I see this as putting the biological finish onto the geological mapping of, uh, of our territories effectively. Yeah, absolutely. And, and your question is just a fundamental biodiversity question as well. I mean, you know, who cares about these animals in the sea? Who cares about biodiversity in the sea? Well, we, sh we all should, because if you lose biodiversity in the sea and your ocean becomes unhealthy, it affects us, it affects our, our, our fisheries, um, and it affects also how the planet works. So this is an oceanic planet. So these may be individual species that people might not be see the relevance of, but really it's about trying to protect life in the oceans. And, and that affects us. You know, it affects our food supply. And the healthy ocean also leads to a healthy planet. So it's really, really important. You know, we were talking about the seabed mapping there. You know, people said, well, why do you want to know this? But if you don't know what's there, you can't protect it. Um, and when you do know what's there, you realize actually this is really important. And what happens on the seabed, what happens in the ocean affects us because this planet is 70% you know, ocean. And we really need to realize that the oceans are really, really important to life on land. Um, so we need to understand these things and we need to keep it healthy. And if we're going to interact with the ocean, we need to know what we're doing and do it in a way that is sustainable with our buzzwords. But that's the important thing that 
And you can't do that if you haven't got information or you haven't got maps, for instance. Yeah. But increasingly, it is a really interesting point. A lot of thing that we're dealing with is looking at different stakeholders' resource requirements in terms of people's historic use of space and recognizing that, you know, the biodiversity agenda and the conservation agenda is one part of that piece, but actually there are other stakeholders that have different vested interests and that those are equally valid positions and that we need to kind of deal with the challenges of and the tensions of trying to work in a common space and recognizing that not, not one group has got precedent over any other, you know, uh, and that that's a really a challenging conversation to have. How much is it overlap between mapping those, those um, animals uh, habitat mapping and 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 mapping a seabed because it's like you know at least in the title it it says like you can almost think like oh you're doing two things you're mapping habitats and you're mapping seabed but now as I'm listening to what you're saying uh, my question is like you know how much there's an overlap you know how much by mapping seabed you're already mapping habitat or how much by mapping habitat you is, is is it like in fact one thing go for it i might deflect that question a little bit and you know and talk about mapping and we've got species distribution modeling which is important but mapping is the seabed is perhaps not just finding out you know how deep the seabed is but it's also trying to work out the attributes of it and if you like, its habitat, you know, currents and, and strength of currents and the type of substrate and where the organisms are. So one of the things that we're doing in this work package, as well as trying to produce these very important species distribution models, is really try to get better and better ways and more advanced ways to do habitat mapping to advance our technology. Um uh, and I'm kind of looking at Joe here because he's kind of directly involved in in a lot of this as, as well as part of his PhD. Um, you know, the oceans are vast. The oceans are under mapped. Okay, we've got charts. People are used to kind of admiralty charts, but they're generally very low resolution and contain little information. But in the past few decades, technology has really increased in leaps and bounds, and we're getting better and better ways to to map the seabed. Um, in more and more resolution and also map attributes of it. And one thing that's happening is we're creating now vast data sets um, because the ocean is so huge. Um, and even the MARPAM area you know, in high resolution is just massive. So one of the things that we're doing is looking at using AIs uh, and other computer tools to see if we can get them to interrogate the maps and get information out that's very important for habitats um, because humans are now becoming, if you like, the weak link. Uh, we can't handle all the data, but maybe we can train computers uh, to take out really relevant information. Um, and it's a really exciting place to be because we now have the computer technology and the power to do this kind of work that, that wasn't uh, possible in the past. And, and what's important about that is that when you have a PC or a computer algorithm looking to do this kind of information extraction, you have a very consistent model and very consistent algorithm doing it each time. So you know the information that you're receiving constantly through this framework, and it's very scalable as well. So we keep talking about this idea of vast information, uh, having one expert trying to extract all that information from this large data set is not the best use of that expert's time. 
you know, that it could be applied to interpreting this information or maybe trying to look at look at it through a very specific lens or trying to get better better quality data from it as well, you know. So that's why we're talking about this AI processing as well. So we have this kind of computer doing the the donkey work, so to speak, you know, for want of a better phrase. And then the the really kind of interesting interpretive work can be applied by your expert then in, in the in the field or office. That's a, that's that's brilliant, or you know. And I often wonder is like the, the risk potentially then that we end up doing is kind of invalidating a lot of the expert effort and therefore doing ourselves <laughs> out of a job. But you can end up with like the self scanners and Tesco's, you know. Uh, you're kind of going keeping people on the checkouts, you know, is keeping the handles turning. But there's bound to be like a, a, absolutely a sweet spot in recognizing this that sometimes that those automated routines, as well as they can work, that actually glitches in them might end up with a situation where you actually haven't realized that there's some fundamental problem until way, way, way down the line because you've that, that disconnect between the expert human operator and, and like I mean we've come back to this conversation so many times in different aspects of our science over the course of the last twenty years. That will we ever be in a situation where we can completely do away with the need for that expert interpretation? And what do we lose by actually failing to cultivate that? You know, like for us, I know you would say the same thing is the reason that you develop that expertise is by those years of spending picking through images or picking through samples. That's where expertise comes from. And in the absence of that, if it's completely steered by an automated process, does that lose something? You know, do we lose something collectively like that? Yeah, and it's where, where humans and computers come together where there's a real strength. I mean, computers are very good at doing repetitive things extremely accurately, but they're very stupid and they make dumb mistakes, you know, and, and humans are wired differently. Um, you know, we, we're very good at spotting patterns. Um, you know, we're predators uh, ultimately. Um, and so putting you know, human expertise with the computers to monitor the computers can be really, really powerful. Um, and there's certain things that computers are great at, um, but I don't think they're going to outcompete humans or, or biologists. Uh, Chris, you're, you're you're safe, you know. Um, AIs are our friends. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's it. It's all about efficiency gains, isn't it? It's it's what what can we what can we do to relieve the burden? Because we're all we all want to collect more data. And and to go back to your question, I think Tommy, you know, it's like like Chris said, it is a can of worms, and and you can it can get bogged down in the pedantry of the definitions, which I often do, but, um, you know, it's hydrography. So the act of going out <clears throat> and collecting the data, that's, that's not mapping. It's not a map until it's been processed and it's been turned into something else. And likewise, mapping the seabed, um, or characterizing the seabed based on, um, geological properties or geomorphological properties, it's incredibly valuable, but that's not, habitat mapping and when you go back to what the definition of a habitat is it's an n-dimensional hypervolume so we're all talking already talking about vast quantities of 2d 3d data for for when we're trying which we're trying to create these characterization maps for to then try and morph that into a true an absolutely true habitat map and this is where you have to kind of put the pedantry aside you've you've added countless numbers of dimensions into that data or in, into that data sphere into that hyper volume that you then need to try and characterize so you're, you're trying to take this infinitely complex system and present it in an a4 page <laughs> you know it's it, it's it's a it's an incredible task 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's these things that like what, what Jair's doing with trying to test these things, they're not, they're not ready to be let off the leash, but we need to make the effort to, to go. And, and that's what, what we're doing. And that if, if you can free up the space to ask more interesting questions elsewhere, then, then that's where the benefit comes. But, but you're right, Alex, that's it as well, is that n-dimensional hypervolume concept is thinking like, right, well, we don't even know what the latent variables are for the species of interest. So what's important for species one is not important for species two, you know, or three or four. And they actually, their interactions together are what gives rise to that concept of the habitat in the first place. And that the patchiness and the spatial and temporal variability in habitat structure and assemblage structure in on the seabed doesn't necessarily adhere to these geological boundaries, uh, and that's that is the disconnect. Because for now, that sounds like I'm, I'm giving geologists a hard time or biologists a hard time, but it's recognizing that it's more subtle than that. I, I think for all of us, uh, and that ultimately the the mystery that's hidden there in in the workings that becomes a rounding error. It's <laughs> difficult for those of us that want absolute truth, you know, which is never anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. So I, I guess it's like you gathering a lot of data and then uh, analyzing the data and modeling, and then because it has to be named something, then it's named habitat and mapping and modeling and all these things. But yeah, uh, but but that, that's the danger, right? As well is when we think about how those products that we create which are like cartoon schematics colored in blobs. And that the risk is that those go to potentially to into the hands of policy makers or management that want to use them uh, to make decisions and that we need to communicate effectively the limitations of those products, what the underlying uh, assumptions are and what, what the challenges around that are. And ultimately is to provide a measure of confidence in those products so that people can use them as tools, which is all that they are. They're only ever going to be a crude approximation of reality, you know, uh, yeah, that's as, a, that's no matter how well produced they are. Yeah. That it's sense. always like, tell me how it is. Like, no, it's more subtle than that. It's like, I'm <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. Folks. So, so I, I guess, you know, uh, it's, I'm taking it's like a two parts, really what you do, you're gathering data and then you're analyzing data. So let's, let's talk about the gathering data. Like what are the ways of, you you know how you how you gathering those vast amounts of data that then are then being analyzed. I, I guess that's that part is the field work, and then the analyzing is the work. It's just less uh, glamorous in the in the office in front of a computer. So before we start, maybe like what what is the percentage? What is the percentage of the cool field work with the breeze in the in the uh, you know and all these things, and how much of it is uh, just in front of a computer? <laughs> Well, we're probably looking at one percent field work, you know. One percent, uh, you know, if we're lucky, and and that still um, produces more information than you can you, you can process in a lifetime. So how you so how are you gathering that those vast amounts of data? Well, there's several ways. I mean, and there's several different types of data that we collect. So, I mean, if we're doing a standard map of the seabed, we use multi-beam echo sounders that are mapping the seabed with with sound um but we if we want to look at organisms or look at the seabed in in maybe high resolution then we can tow camera systems along the bottom uh but then we maybe want to sample the seabed um to see what specific organisms are there particularly ones you know in the sediment that you might not see in a camera system or the smaller organisms 
Does that give you points of information as opposed to lines and areas? Um, but then if we've got species that are mobile, we might want to put down called a baited camera, you know, to, to track the organisms with some, some food uh, and then see what's there. So there's very different types of, of data. Um, you, you may put instruments down measuring current speed and other kinds of things like that. So there's lots of different information. Some of it is aerial. Some of it is, is a line. Some of it is a point. Um, and we have to sort of put this all together and try to understand a little bit about what, where the species are and why they are there and where the communities are. So there's lots of different information coming together to try to work out what is this hypervolume, if you like, of, of habitat. Um, lots of different disparate data, but it takes a long time to work this up. Um, so we're not out mapping the seabed all the time. Uh, but we are getting information. It takes a lot of time to process that information and get the, I guess, the information out of the data. And that's that's the important distinction. Uh, and that, that's a brilliant one. It just has occurred to me again, thinking about scalability and AI is like, if you can find an AI that can process sediment samples, you know, <laughs> through a sieve, <laughs> it's like, I want to see it, you know, <laughs> because I think after spending like, Backbreaking hours over a sieve in a fume cupboard, you know, trying to rinse or stain or dye or separate material is like, yeah, that, that that's the there are bottlenecks throughout all of these processes, and it's like the technology often follows the easy wins. So we'll hear about where it works really well, but not hear about where it falls down, and, and that's a really interesting. It can, point. It, it can free some time for people to just work through sediments because they don't have to analyze them. But that, yeah, exactly that. But that, you know, and this is you know, we're, we're talking about these inno innovative technologies, and we, we've mentioned the the robots getting out there. So it's the same thing. They don't the robots don't go down and do um, complex tasks by themselves. You know, they're 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 given very tight instructions for the the autonomous ones. They're deployed, and they would go and do something like the acoustic surveys, um, or maybe a high level camera survey. Um, but that frees up. The research vessel, which is this big, expensive platform, um, to go and do something different. So you could have your AUV, and then you're doing one mission, and then you you can deploy your ROV from the research vessel, which is steered by humans. You can't disconnect humans from from the ROV process at all. Um, but th that gives you it gives you more data to to you know to try and fathom how you're going to analyze them. But each each step of this is trying to you're you're trying to kind of um, lift the curtain a little bit more um, for the marine environment and just see what we're doing. And, and what we, what the project has tried to do by by utilizing that. So Chris um, has deployed the the Bravs debated remote underwater video cameras that, that Andy just mentioned there, and looking for skate, and you've captured some on image, um, and, and so that's that's a real win because it's it's proved the concept works. Um, if, you know both. Andy and Chris's team, so I'm speaking for you now, but you've, they've both done work with the ROVs, which are being utilized in, in, in different facets of, of the project. So, you know, there's, there's um, the technology opens up new opportunities for us to do things, and, and we're never going to remove people from it. It's just, it's not feasible. Um, I was at a conference recently where we were talking about remote hydrography, um, and there was still such a, there was an army of people behind the robots that were off, do, off doing these things. Um, so we can't make ourselves redundant just yet. 
Yeah, it comes back to another. I've I've been reflecting on this a lot over the last few years after having been involved in successive kind of iterations of new technology technological developments uh, in terms of how they affect our ability to do ecology and to do science underwater, basically. And it's that point of going like, when is enough is enough, right? To a point where okay, technological thresholds that maybe unlock whole new tranches of understanding, but if you end up kind of bogged down in the technology, then it's basically like an arms race of new stuff. Like like you think about it like TVs, you know, as an analogy, you know, going, oh, well, I'll go and buy another TV. Then three months later, a new version of the same thing comes out. And it's like a rabbit hole that you can get pulled down and start becoming obsessed by progressively finer and finer and finer resolution that ultimately isn't changing the ecological inference that you're trying to make about the system. So there comes a point, I think, probably in most scientists' lives where they might go, do you know what? I'm happy with that level. You know, I don't want an ultra-high-definition TV because my eyes are standard definition. <laughs> you know, it's like I, ultimately the ecological inference I can make from my work is kind of comes to a point where you go, that, that's good enough for what I want to do, you know? And ultimately the improvements thereafter might just be uh, – it might be lost in the wash, you know? Um, but uh, that doesn't make me into a Luddite, right? But what I'm saying is trying to understand the role that technology plays in understanding ecological systems. And those, they're, they're like two sides of the same coin, really, you know? That's a really good point. And, it, and I've kind of thought about this as well quite a bit. And, you know, the new technologies allows you to ask new questions, but it doesn't mean the old questions you ask are invalid. Yeah. You know, and sometimes the new technology asks you to see things in, in a higher resolution, uh, in more detail, but you know, what level of detail do you really need to answer the question? So we can become the kind of slaves to all the shiny lights and buttons, uh, and it's and the funding agencies can as well. I think that's it. It depends on the question that the funding agencies are prepared to fund. Is this just us now starting to show our vintage? You know, yeah. it's like I definitely, definitely didn't feel like this when I was in my early twenties. Jerry, I don't know. Like, what do you think? Where you're coming from now? Oh no, I <laughs> it doesn't feel that way to me now. But I feel like it might change with time. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, as I say, still using Windows XP illegally on my machine. You know, because I can't deal with the trauma of upgrading. You know? <laughs> No, but I mean, like this is very, this is very valid point. You know, like to not lose sight from you know what is that you're really trying to achieve and what is really trying to do and answer a question versus like you know oh I have these all these technology and like like let's do this now. Uh, You know, you could you could do the the other things. Do the important stuff, not just the fun stuff. The important stuff is what you should be doing, and it might be fun. But it, you know, it might be boring. But if it's important, yeah, do it. important is always boring and mundane. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, joking, joking. I, I, I want to hear about those autonomous vehicles, about those robots. How do they work, and are they just, um, you know, working for like weeks at a time, days at a time? Are you kind of uh, uploading the path that they're following the path and scanning? Like, how does how does all that work? That the pre-programmable survey instruments. So they're like little tiny submarines, if you like, with instrument packages. And you pre-program them and you say, I want you to go down and say, collect this um, piece of video of, of the seabed 
uh, and you know follow this prescribed paths and, and they may have and they usually do have some avoidance technology and if they bump into a rock you know they they can see it uh, and they go around it um and but they do have limits and their limits are often in terms of the payload how heavy they are uh, and the energy requirements to move them so they the batteries you know the, the bigger the batteries the heavier they are and it becomes a, a lose-lose situation so um they're not out for weeks they're out for for hours to to you know, if you're lucky a bit you know a, a, a day or so um so they do have limits to what they're doing um but the the real beauty about them is that they collect really clean data because they're not tethered to a ship that's bobbing about on the surface that may be tugging them you know there's no human trying to steer them they they steer themselves far more accurately than we can so that so they produce really nice clean data um but as alex was saying they can't do complicated tasks you know they can do routine tasks and, and seabed mapping is perfect for them um and so that's really where they come in the the other technology we talked about are rovs remotely operated vehicles so this is where the the, the system is tethered to the ship but it has its own propulsion. So you sit on the surface and there's cameras on the vehicle and you can drive it around and you can use it to explore. So a lot of the places we go are too deep for divers, um, but you can send the ROV down there. And when I'm not working on MARPAM, I'm often working in the deep ocean kilometers down. Uh, and you certainly, the only things you can get down there are these ROVs. Uh, and again, they can collect data but you're you're steering them and you're flying them around but you can have a whole team of people up on top looking at the computer screen saying oh that's interesting well let, let's do this well as if it's an individual in a, in a submarine or a submersible or a dive it's just that one person reacting so these are just ways for us to access the seabed uh, and collect information um, rovs are our hands and eyes on the seabed and AUVs being autonomous are really good at collecting really clean data routinely, um, and they're both both really really useful. So, so based on what I what I what I gather now is like you you have like a mission when you have a ship that goes out on the sea, and then you deploy some of those uh, autonomous yeah. vehicles, and then maybe ship moves somewhere else, and then you have operators, uh, you know, operating ROVs and all that. What amount of data? You, after that mission, when that ship comes back with all the you know missions, ROVs, AVs, and so on, like how how much data do you do you have? I don't know how you're going to quantify that in the in the terabytes region. In the, yeah, like... yeah, it's completely dependent on on what's what's what you've asked um, or what your survey plan was. Um, so, if you go out for a day, you may have tens of gigabytes of if we're just talking about acoustic data, just multi-room echo sounder, so that's your, your bathymetry, your, your depth measurements, and your backscatter, which your textural roughness characteristics. So that would be, you know, you're looking at tens of gigs. And if you're there, if you run an acoustic survey for a week, then you're approaching a terabyte if you run an acoustic survey. and it, But that also depends on the system. So you can have some systems only collect in one frequency, others collect across several. And if you're collecting several frequencies, then you're surveying the same bit of seabed five times, for example, 
then that's five times the amount of data. And then the systems, we can also collect the water column if we really want to. So that increases it threefold, fourfold in, in our memory demand. So it, it's completely dependent on what, what your your intention is, what your plan was when you left. And so if if you have a multi-beam echo sounder on your ship, a multi-beam echo sounder on your ROV, and a multi-beam echo sounder on your AUV, they're all collecting data in different resolutions. So, so your, your ROV would be centimetric, your AUV would be, you know, decimetric to metric, and then your your ship is metric to to 50, 100 meters, which depending on water depth, where, where Andy is in, in the abyssal stuff, then your footprint is huge. Um, and, and your resolution is much larger than, than what you would get with these other systems. But you, um, it, it's a sliding scale. It's the short way. But I think just to come back to, to what we do, the, AU, the AUVs and the ROVs, what they do do, which we can't necessarily do from purely shipborne systems, is you can you can monitor the exact same area. So you can set your mission, your AUV, your AUV in particular, you can say, right, last year you did these four lines and you can give them the same, exact same coordinates and you go over the, and in theory, you should be traversing those exact same four lines in the same pattern, in the same way, so that there isn't any deviation. So then you've got a direct comparison year to year or whichever your intervening period is. If you do that from a ship, as Andy said, you've got all, you've got your wind conditions, your surface conditions, your swell conditions. Um, everything's a little bit different and it's, it's close enough for science, <laughs> but it's not exact. Uh, you know, so this, that's what, you know, the, the, those are some other advantages. You just, we have increased accuracy. It doesn't have to be high resolution, but we, we really do have that, that capability to improve the accuracy of what we're doing. And and how they are how those uh, underwater vehicles position themselves because like GPS is not an option. No, we we, we position the ship by GPS, mm -hmm. and then obviously GPS doesn't work underwater. Yeah. So underwater, we use what we call ultra short baseline navigation systems, acoustic systems, and so you put a, a beacon on your instrument, and it will range itself to the to the ship. Oh, okay. So we have a position from the ROV to the ship, and then the ship. Uh, to the satellite, but we can get these things very, very accurate. Um, and, and with the ROVs as well, we use things like inertial navigation systems. So they have gyroscopes in them that feel, you know, where they're going. So they're estimating where they should be. And then they're also plotting where they are. So they can, if there's an error in the beacon from the ship, they can, they can fill it in. They can smooth it out. So you, you, between all these different, uh, navigation systems we can get things down to centimeter scale um in the deep ocean which is really quite incredible um and so we can get it very very accurate now but there has to be this gotcha, you know, gotcha. ship to satellite and then ship to below water so it's not so much that they are like they, they're positioned them so super accurately they position themselves accurately enough but then with the data with all the data that is also related with the GPS and so you can kind of correct and then you can, after processing, yeah. get your exact. Yeah. Oh, we often use several navigation methods so that if the, so when one has some errors, the other navigation system might be working. So when you combine all of these, you get a, you get a, a more reliable position. Um, and, and that's a whole science in itself that I, I leave to the technicians. Uh, but it's very, very important, you know, knowing where you are is critical um, and uh, we, we, you know, we can get that very accurately by 
using different systems that 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 take out each other's errors effectively. So, so you mentioned technicians. So I'm just going to briefly uh, ask the question: How big of a part of uh, you know the whole Marpan project or part of your work is to you know keep keep those uh, vehicles running because I'm, I presume there is a servicing required and, you know, salt water is corrosive environment. So they need to be serviced and, you know, clean. Like, like how, how big like, is it like, like, oh, there are technicians are doing that and this is not of your concern or is it like a part of Marpan project that you need to take care of all that as well? Yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're lucky. So the, the Marpan itself is, is not responsible for those, you know, we've, we've, um, invoke the power of the partners mm. so they've already got the team so um we used the, the small auv and in um jail were present i think for the training course in oban a few years ago um and we've deployed it in Mulroy bay on the north coast of ireland and in strangford lock um in northern ireland and, and so that's run by the scottish association for marine science and they have a marine robotics team so their their responsibility is to do all of that maintenance to program, um, to adjust the payloads, to make sure that the, the AUV has got the right tools for the task that it, it it's going to do for the various projects that they're involved with. So we're lucky, you know, we, we've basically just, we, we, we've hired it for the day and we've trusted people to, to, to run it for us. But it's not going to well, we're, we're, we're one of many users of this equipment. So uh, lots of different projects and lots of different, researchers and government agencies will be using this equipment uh so it's been maintained if you like uh for us uh, as part of an investment uh, collective investment in our countries if you like in trying to manage this marine environment and understand it but we're we're one of many users so. gotcha 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 okay so now you have all this data and you know you 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 now the now the fun stuff <laughs> begins you know right i don't know whether it's a really fun stuff or like not fun because in front of a computer but that's really interesting uh let's say so my first question would be you have a lot of data and that data like like you 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 mentioned really represents the same area but from different angles if you like there's different wavelengths and there's photographs and there's all sorts, all types of data. So for my, my very first question is like, do you have already methods that you can apply? And because one thing is to make, I, I'm guessing now you can correct me, but this is just, just my, my, my guess is that first of all, first challenge is to make all those types of data into something consistent, like make one consistent view of the area based on all that data. And so I, I wonder, are there already methods and, and, and methods, I guess is a proper word, or techniques of doing that? Or is it part of your project also to develop, first you need to develop a method to actually have something consistent that then only you can analyze? Or are those methods already available to you? No, it's, it's both um, for, for MARPAM. So we, there are... There are you've got methodologies which are well established and and um, and the techniques to do that so for the acoustic data <clears throat> excuse me the hydrographic data that come in there are well established techniques for cleaning the bathymetric data and that's come from the charting organizations so in the uk that's ukho um but but there's there are um there are strict rules as to how that can be done 
um, because it, especially if those data are going to be used for navigation. Um, we have principles, um, national principles for the, the analysis of video and imagery data. Um, we have in the UK, which I think the Republic signs up to as well, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but we have the um, a scheme uh, called NMBA QC, which is a quality control scheme for the analysis of um, faunal samples, so the macrofauna, the worms and stuff that comes out of the mud, the particle size analysis of the sediment. So there are all these factors, but what Jer's doing is looking for new techniques. That's where Jer steps in. <laughs> so the, the the new thing, like we were discussing before, is trying to get the, the computers to develop a system whereby we can extract information automatically. And this this is the idea where we can drive this at a scalable or situation and, and as chris pointed out it's not 100 perfect because there are bottlenecks but um it, there this is this is a way we can do this effectively uh consistent or as consistently as possible because we can uh compare this maybe with a human interpreter or what's actually happening on the ground so we can collect ground truth data like um andy was specifying before with our video toes and maybe with some, you know, grab samples from the sea floor where we take a physical sample and compare it with what might have modeled out of our, our computer algorithms. So the, those things are still in development, that, that kind of very specific uh, thought behind that. But we're, we're progressing through it. We have a few, develop, or a few new ideas that we've already published and release out and we're coming up with a few extra things down the pipeline as well so Joe's been very humble here <laughs> he's been he's been working on um sediment waves and sediment waves are, li are like sand dunes on the seabed but that the, the currents are, are moving these you know and only certain organisms like to live in in mobile sand so in a way they represent if you like a, a bit of a crude habitat so Joe's been trying to train the computers to to map these very accurately, but also about dimensions and things like that. Yeah, so the the idea is that these features can can change depending on, on the habitat you're looking at, and they don't all occur at this one size. They can occur at a variety of scales, and you need to develop a technique that's flexible in that domain. And that was the, the idea behind our, behind our first release or behind our first research release was establishing that method to take out these features at different scales. Now, what we want to try and do is develop tools to help further analyze these features that we've extracted from, we'll say, multi-beam data and try and infer things about the environment that are a bit more intuitive than just saying, this is a sand dune. We might be able to develop something like, or oh, we can actually infer maybe a current speed from this sand dune and get an idea of how this affects the environment or how organisms might respond to a certain current speed or what have you and, and in doing that if we can map the current speeds from these these sediment waves which we think we can do actually we're just about to publish that uh then suddenly we've got um a whole amount of current information at the seabed current velocity information at the seabed over an area as opposed to just a measurement at a point where you actually measured it. So it becomes like a predictive tool for how strong are the currents in this area, which way are they, which way are they flow. So, and this is just from a, a seabed map, you know, so there's power in deriving information from, from these maps as well. 
over large areas very accurately using AI as we would be at it for forever trying to measure each of these features. And we can get the computer just to do it. So uh, it's quite exciting what what is doing. So 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 I, I, I guess this this follow like a standard like machine learning where you first build a model and you validate the model you you see you know how it responds and and then you can feed that feed so then ultimately you can basically get feed not process data into the model because it then it can take kind of in parallel analyze all that and give you um final results yeah you the the, the concept is you you provide some information to the to the computer but hold some back and get it to develop a model and then you you check it against the information see how accurately it, it did it um, and then where it is inaccurate you, you get it to improve that process so until eventually you come up with something that that um, is reliable you know um, the, what's interesting about these computers is um, they make silly mistakes that we wouldn't do because they think in a very different way you know Um so, uh, and that's where you still need the humans because they can do things very quickly and very accurately. And then to do something fundamentally stupid um, where you say, oh, I guess, you know, that, that bit of seabed does look a bit like a s submarine dune, but it's obvious to me it's a shipwreck, you know, <laughs> but the computer just goes, oh, well, I thought, you know, and off it goes. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting process and, it, and it's it's where the humans and the computers meet and, and that's the, I guess that the, that 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 part of training the model is is the most 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 challenging and validating the results and now getting your your confidence rate and so on but once that's done that's where you really have a benefit of you know you can you can you can let it run and, and get yeah that that's the important bit is that you need to understand the limitation of the model behind this so you can actually make an informed decision about the information that it gives out to you so you don't just take it and run you kind of have to interrogate it a small bit as well and see is this in fact what you're seeing and that that's the important point behind that as well and that i suppose is where the expert interpreter is is a valuable resource is because you could get a couple of these because you're ma mapping these things over time so you're getting constant data flow we'll say that's the ideal situation and that your expert interpreter is interrogating let's say the output from these models and properly trying to identify is is it correct in saying what it's saying and, and if it is then, like a validation data set to, to exactly yeah and then you can maybe escalate the inferences from that to maybe some some authority then who can make an informed decision based on on that collective you know that kind of computer human collective like yeah you know. is it you're doing it in r or python uh my 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 research is in python so i'd be mainly python yeah. based right yeah <laughs> i i thought like uh in an academic environment like r is the king and it's like yeah. it it was all right um there was some some I made some forays into R early on, but I found uh, that the Python for me, anyway, personally, was a bit easier to to get a handle on from from because I started from from basics at the very beginning of the PhD with coding, and I I found more resources for for Python for a beginner, anyway, personally myself. So for sure, I'm a Python yeah. guy myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Okay, listen, folks. Uh, before we wrap this up. Um, a question that I'm asking always, often, 
uh, to my guests, uh, and especially when you're, you know, like a deep and like in the front line of, uh, well, conservation and trying to understand the nature and habitat and so on. Um, you obviously see the changes over the years and obviously to see the impacts of both, you know, human impacts and, you know, climate is, is actually human impact as well. Um, what are your uh, views for the, for the, for the future? You know, how, how it's going to play it out? Are we, are we, you know, um, manage to, you know, stop the loss of biodiversity and all that? Are we, you know, almost helpless? And like, Alex, you almost excused from this question because I asked that question last time. So if you, <laughs> if you want to elaborate more than please, but <laughs> I know that I've already asked, was asking you that question, but, but, uh, you know, Andy and Jared, like, you know, I, I, especially, you know, like what's your, what, what, what are your views? And especially that you're, you know, age differences, like you might have a, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether it's going to be like a pessimistic, optimistic view or like you kind of the same on the same boat on this, so to say. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah. Well, I, I think um, like we're, the, if we were to follow the path that we're following now, that we can't certainly expect to have a good outcome in terms of the environment and conservation. But if we, aspire to do better so if we we follow what scientists are saying that that climate change is profoundly impacting our world and we need to alter what we're doing then if we were to strictly follow adhere to that and i think we would have a good shot because we undersell i feel like personally anyway that we undersell what we're capable of and we are capable of maybe ratcheting that back if we if we were really dedicated to it but um that that's the important bit about it i suppose is the the dedication to that change like as well. I, I guess I'm a pessimist that believes in a silver lining. Mm. Uh, I've been watching the climate debate since the 1980s. I'm a bit older than Jer, and I must admit it's incredibly depressing um, and that humans and society seem to have an intrinsic inability in their nature to grasp the fundamental problem that we're facing and I think it's really bleak. But and, and I think, you know, particularly recently it's become really stark that things are really happening now in terms of biodiversity loss, in terms of melting ice caps, all these difficulties. And we're not really tackling it by changing our lifestyle and the way we operate, and the way we have to. So I do think we're in for a really rough ride. But I also think that humans are a very adaptive species. And I think we will get through this, but unfortunately, not until we've beaten ourselves up in the process um, because you know we, we're just not doing the right things now and we're going to pay a bigger price later. And we will pay a bigger price later. And I think it's very depressing and I think it's very bleak and I feel sorry for my children. Um, but I do think we'll get through this, but... Um, you know, we really don't help ourselves, and uh, it worries. It worries me. Do you think that this is because the changes are so slow that they were hard to grasp? It's like, ah, oh, you know, like whatever happens, and as they accelerate, and that as you start to see impacts year and year, then it's you know, like a red light is like, oh crap. Yeah, I, I think I think there is an element of that, and you know, it's the the frog in the kettle thing. You know, you don't make the change around you. Um, but I think there's also a something very intrinsic in human nature and, a, and you know, perhaps a healthy 
skepticism in the doom and gloom prophecies that that may generate. Um, but but actually, some of them might be real, <laughs> and we need to do something about them. But I think it, it's perhaps a little bit more fundamental that um, at the end of the day, you know, we have our lives and we have our are things that we think are essential, uh, and we just don't look ahead that far as a species. Um, and our leaders aren't looking ahead because they're actually worried about their votes, you know. And our, our industrialists aren't looking ahead because they're worried about their profits. And everyone knows that this is an issue, but collectively, everyone is is unable to deal with this um, until it happens. And then when we really feel the impact, when it really becomes, and it's, it is happening in terms of wildfires and things, uh, we'll eventually we'll do something, but it's almost too late there. And we know this, but we're not, and I'm, and I'm responsible. I still drive a car that isn't electric, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, but I think we will survive, uh, certainly as a species and almost definitely as a civilization, but we're going to go through some tough times and you know maybe we have to do that and maybe we'll learn from that but you know we should have been doing it 10 years ago and we should be doing it now but we're not we're not doing it <laughs> no it seems to be intrinsic in our nature and okay but uh it's okay you know that that's my feeling and maybe that's a bit uh a, not a nice way to end this conversation but well wake up people you got to change, and, and we'll get <laughs> we can't say that though, can we, Andy? We've just been speaking about collecting all these data from diesel yeah. burning research vessels. You know, absolutely, you know, it's, uh... <laughs> absolutely. You know, we're, but we're talking now in Ireland about putting them onto onto vegetable oil, actually, uh, and looking at carbon footprints. You know, and we are doing these things, but we're just doing it too late. You know, um, so and yeah, and there, there, like you say, there's lots of. Um, uh, inconsistencies in this and hypocrisy in this. Um, and I'm, for one, a hypocrite, but um, th th that's what we have to work out individually and, and collectively. Um, and maybe we won't do that as a species until, uh, you know, th there really is a crunch. And then I'm sure we will adapt. And I guess that's what I'm saying, you know. <laughs> Sorry to really no, depress you're everybody. No, you're, you're okay. I mean, like, this, but, is, you know. this is the reality. Alex, you have anything, any, any second, do you want a second attempt at your predictions for the future? I don't know. I, I think what Anushka said was quite telling last time in that um, we're going to experience a, a change in the way that our ecosystems are made up. So that may be mass mass loss of biodiversity or it may just be a mass change so you could see a lot of different species existing in areas that they didn't previously um we've seen maybe historically from from other mass extinction events um that you get new speciations so a changed world it's not going to be the one we have now um i think that's it's very much there but is it an absolute doom story we, none of us have a crystal ball. Uh, the projections aren't good. We can all we can all front up to that. We can all face that. But the the ultimate consequences, um, say for the resilience of the natural world, it'll find. I think a lot, like like Andy was saying, humans will persist in in one form or another. And I think a lot of the marine environmental organisms will persist in in one way or another. It's just what does that 
way or another look like when we get there. Um, and we have the consciousness, you know, we've, there's a lot of effort throughout <clears throat> the world and, and in Europe and our islands in particular to, to try and implement new forms of conservation. So all the jurisdictions are trying to create marine protected areas. We're looking at new ways to try and protect different species, to expand from traditional ways of conservation where you just draw a line around something and leave it alone and, and trying to be a bit more adaptive. You know, there's, so maybe it's too little too late, but at least there there is effort. There, there are heroic few um, and then the rest are getting dragged along. Folks, um, thanks for that. Thanks thanks a lot for that. And, you know, like words with, with wisdom. Uh, and you already said, like, people, we need to change. And, and, I, and I think that this, this is, uh, this is uh, inevitable. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think, like, we all, uh, even if you're, a, you know, campaign climate, climate change campaigner and so on and you know if you have your house heated in the oil you know coming november there is a thousand liters of kerosene coming to your tank because you got to have a heat um but i think that the the problem is that we need to tackle scale because the, 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 this is you know one car not yeah there's no problem but then you talk about okay i have a like you know we let's all have electric cars and like okay where you take you know rare metals to make all the batteries and then where you're gonna store the mountain of old batteries and etc 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 so as always you know i think that we need to learn to deal with the scale because scale is killing us um all right folks Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate uh, your your this conversation. It's it's extremely uh, interesting, and I am sure that our listeners and viewers learned a lot. Uh, and if they want to uh, learn more, there's a Marpam website. I'm gonna put it in the show notes. Uh, and uh, yeah, all the best with your work. You're you're doing a great job. I think uh, this is this is extremely important uh, to have these projects that are especially that are you know cross borders. Uh, gathering the data and then uh, all that remains is to have a hope that uh, decision makers and policy makers will actually uh, take that data into account and do what's right. Thanks very much, Tommy. We'll talk about the worms eventually, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, we missed. Did we miss that? <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tommy. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Tommy. Thank you. Uh,